when we look at the people with those comorbidities, so for example, if you look at that first, you know, tragic wave of COVID deaths in New York, that's been very well studied, we see that more than two thirds of those people had diabetes, hypertension, combination, had obesity, et cetera, had these comorbidities that we know make them sicker and yes. make them more likely to have a poor outcome. And all of those illnesses are also associated with disruption in the microbiome. Mm, They're okay. all associated with a disrupted gut microbiome. So if you are basically a healthy person and you don't have these chronic diseases, you don't have an autoimmune disease, you eat a reasonably healthy diet, you eat some vegetables every day, or, or more importantly, you eat a variety of different plants. We know from the American Gut Project study in 2018, that magic number of 30 or more yeah. different plant foods, fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, herbs, spices, whole grains. So if you're doing that and you're eating a nice diverse diet with a lot of plants, you're getting some exercise, you're managing your stress, you're spending time outdoors, those basic things, you're going to be fine. The overwhelming likelihood is you're going to be fine. Occasionally, do the odds just not make sense? Very occasionally. But poor outcomes, whether we're talking about COVID-19, stroke, cancer, heart attack, poor outcomes are almost always forecastable and they're reducible. They're not always preventable, right? but they are forecastable and they're reducible. Welcome to the Good Life Coach Podcast. I am your host, Michelle Lamoureux. The intention of this show is to awaken you to your fullest potential. Join me each week for inspiring interviews to elevate an area of your life, as well as interviews with women entrepreneurs who are creating success on their own terms. Each episode provides actionable tips to guide you to design a life you love. Hey friends, it's Michelle Lamoureux and welcome back to the Good Life Coach Podcast. We have a great show for you today. We are talking about health and specifically our gut health with Dr. Shutkan, who is a board certified gastroenterologist and the best-selling author of Gut Bliss, The Microbiome Solution, The Bloat Cure, and her latest book, The Antiviral Gut, which she is on the show today to discuss with us. And this book is so fascinating. I learned so much and had so many aha moments reading it. And you're going to understand why it's so important to take care of your gut health. And she's going to give us very specific ways to do so. Dr. Shutkan was educated at Yale and Columbia. She's a faculty member at Georgetown Hospital and the founder of the Digestive Center for Wellness in Washington, D.C. A former governing board member and training committee chair of the American Society for Gastrointestinal Endoscopy, she's authored dozens of scientific articles and lectured globally on autoimmune diseases and the role of the microbiome in health and disease. Dr. Shetkan has her own PBS special entitled Gut Bliss and has been a frequent medical expert on the Dr. Oz Show, the Today Show, CBS This Morning, and other media outlets. She's an avid runner, squash player, and yogi who is passionate about introducing more dirt, sweat, and vegetables into her patients' lives. And she's going to be talking more about that today. You can find all of the show notes for today at thegoodlifecoach.com, and I'm going to link to her website. She's offering a free masterclass in February of 2023, and I'm going to link to where you can sign up for that. 
there'll be a link to her book as well. I just find that she explains things so well and so thoroughly. Um, and I always learn so much from her. So I really want to make you aware of all of that information. Um, just a reminder, this is a podcast for entertainment and educational purposes only. It is not intended to be medical advice. Be sure to reach out to your trusted medical provider for anything dealing with your health and well-being. I'm so excited to share this interview with you today. If you enjoy it, be sure to share it with a friend and to rate and review it over on Apple Podcasts. I love being able to share your feedback with the guests. So on that note, so honored and excited to have Dr. Shutkan here, and let's get into the show. Here we go. Welcome to the show, Dr. Shutkan. So happy you're here today. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm thrilled to be on. Well, I'm a fan of your work. Um, your first book, The Microbiome Solution, first book for me to read, not your only first book that you wrote in 2015, I was telling you before we started to record, really changed my life and my understanding of gut health and how much control we have over our health. But I feel like you're a pioneer in this space and not that many people were talking about it. And you are a gastroenterologist. And I find that I don't know. I feel like we think of like, oh, we're going to go get our colonoscopy. Nobody's talking to us about what we eat. And uh, I just want to acknowledge and thank you for all your four books that you've written and your most recent one, The Antiviral Gut, Tackling Pathogens from the Inside Out. Um, just fantastic. Yes, everyone, <laughs> well, thank needs, you. everyone needs to get this book. Thank you so much for that. And I'll tell you, you know, when I set out to be a gastroenterologist now, goodness, let's see, I finished medical school in 1991. So somewhere in the residency there in the early 1990s, I didn't even realize how central the gut is to our overall health. And, you know, in the pecking order at the time for residences, people, the, the really popular things, and these things come and go, but some of the popular specialties were dermatology, orthopedics, ophthalmology. And I remember some of my medical school colleague friends at, at Columbia saying, why would you want to wait around and poo? Like that just seems like not a fun and deal with people's gas and bowel movements. That doesn't seem like fun. And, and, and now, you know, fast forward a couple of decades, the gut is really having a moment, isn't it? I yeah, mean, we're, it is. we're really realizing that when you think about how central it is, just think about where it's located in the body. It's right in the center of our body. And it really is the engine yeah. for, you know, it feeds all the organs, our brains, our immune system, our musculoskeletal system, our heart, et cetera. And so it is, I, I really wasn't even aware when I decided to become a gastroenterologist, how critical it was to our overall health. So that's been a really nice sort of discovery for me too, as a, as a gastroenterologist. Yeah. It's just, it's amazing um, just to learn and understand it. Can I just ask, I mean, do you, do your peers focus on this stuff though? Cause that's, I feel like no. And, and so that's why I love that there are these smart, intelligent, beautiful women inside and out like yourself who are out there just educating and trying to lift everybody up with just such important information. And you do it in such a, an amazing way because I find like when I read your books, it's never overwhelming. It's just the right amount of technical and really understanding like how everything's working within us and having a, so you have an appreciation of that. And then you always give, you know, the tactical, listen, this is what you can do to get on track. So I have a lot of conversations with patients who come to me for 
second or third or fourth opinion, sometimes yeah. a seventh opinion. Yeah. And they'll say, well, why didn't my gastroenterologist tell me about that? And I'll say, well, they're at a different point in the journey. They're where I was, you know, 15 years ago or 10 years ago. And, you know, I think it's really important for people to understand that what we get, the sort of conventional classical medical education is excellent. I mean, I'm very proud to be a Columbia College of Physicians and Surgeons graduate. I got a wonderful medical education there. But there's a lot that was missing. And part of it was none of us knew. We all kind of missed the boat in the medical and scientific community a couple of decades ago about the importance of the microbiome. We were busy trying to sterilize things and get rid of germs, right? And we didn't realize what a critical role these play. And for me, my eyes were really opened. And Michelle, you've read the book, so you know the story of my experience with my daughter 17 and a half years ago when she was born via C-section. Um, I received antibiotics during the labor and she received heavy doses of intravenous antibiotics at birth prophylactically because I had a fever, which was the flu, but they weren't sure. Could it be an Mm. infection? So they decided to give her antibiotics just in case. And I didn't understand the implications of a C-section birth versus a vaginal birth. And the fact that babies born via C-section are colonized typically with hospital-acquired microbes instead of the mother's healthy microbes. They miss out on that critical passage through the birth canal. I didn't understand the importance of nursing, of breastfeeding, and how one of the most important ingredients in breast milk is something called human milk oligosaccharides that's indigestible by the baby because it's there to feed the baby's microbes. Hmm. And the importance of breast milk for nurturing that burgeoning microbiome, all those little microbial foot soldiers in the baby's gut that are in training, wasn't aware of that, wasn't aware of the impact of multiple courses of antibiotics as my daughter received Hmm. more than 20 courses by the time she was two. That was all for me as a conventionally trained doctor. I thought, well, they're just being really proactive. This is modern medicine, you know, working. And what allowed me to recognize the injury this was causing was really the fact that I had been caring for many, many years for patients with autoimmune diseases like Crohn's and ulcerative colitis. And I recognized, gosh, a lot of these patients have a similar history. And then right around that time, we were starting to see glimmers in the scientific literature. For example, a big study that came out published in the journal Gut. Yes, we have a journal called Gut, and it's very good. (laughs) And this is, you know, fun reading on a Sunday afternoon. There was an article, a meta-analysis from the institution where I did my gastroenterology fellowship training, Mount Sinai. And this was a meta-analysis of over 7,000 patients. And it found that frequent antibiotic use in childhood was a risk factor for Crohn's disease. Wow. And since then, we've seen that with multiple other autoimmune diseases. So I was, it was like the perfect storm. I had experienced this, unfortunately, around my daughter's birth. She was a very sickly baby and child. Nobody could Mm -hmm. figure out why. I was seeing similar history with people who then were diagnosed with autoimmune diseases. And then we were seeing data coming out in the scientific literature showing that yes, these early exposure to antibiotics is a risk factor for autoimmune disease. It's a risk factor for sort of inability for your immune system to mount an adequate response. It makes you more susceptible to infections, both viral and bacterial. And so I remind people that I didn't just sort of wake up and go, oh yeah, I know all this stuff. And you know, let me tell you what everybody's doing wrong, that it was a very gradual transformation. And unfortunately, some of it was painful. It was through, you know, being a mother to a very sick child. And, you know, I felt like mostly what the medical establishment had to offer was more antibiotics, which at the time was not what she needed. 
So I really encourage my patients. I tell them all the time, don't break up with your doctor unless they're an ass. If they're an ass, then you absolutely should break. If you're going to see somebody <laughs> and they're making you feel small and stupid and you know they're obnoxious, by all means, find another doctor. But if your doctor is poorly informed, do what my patients did. Have a dialogue. Explain to them what you're doing, what's working. I remember the first patient who told me that she was using nutritional therapy to treat her Crohn's. I thought she was completely mad. I was like, <laughs> what? What? What do you mean you're not on any medication? That's like driving a car with no insurance. That's dangerous. I mean, I remember feeling like, you know, my heart rate going up, getting a little agita, like, oh my goodness, this is so scary. And so it was very gradual of seeing hundreds and hundreds and eventually thousands of patients. And then me myself starting to say, okay, let's try this diet and let's do this. And I'll tell you, Michelle, it's like magic when you see somebody with a complex autoimmune disease like Crohn's or ulcerative colitis, where not only do they feel poorly yeah. and they're having pain and maybe 10, 10 or 20 bloody bowel movements, and I do their colonoscopy and everything is so inflamed. And to see that, improve and sometimes completely normalize as a result of changing what they're eating. Wow. For somebody like me who was trained, you know, in the conventional medical world, it seemed like nothing short of magic. Now it all makes sense because we can all put it together with the microbiome and what's going on. But it's still um it's still the work that brings me the most joy, not because those drugs don't work, but the kinds of drugs that we use also have really problematic side effects. They have side effects like cancer and serious infection and even death. And so having to put, you know, a 20-year-old on a drug for life that can mm -hmm. potentially be worse than the disease itself, it's not a great feeling. And so when when I can help people get off those drugs or use a lower dose or it's something, it really is really, really gratifying. But it was a process. And I think I'm lucky because I was already established in the conventional medical world when I started writing books. So I had already been practicing. I was full-time academic at Georgetown. I had been on one of our big GI advocacy organizations. I had been on the board. I had trained the, I had chaired the training committee. So my colleagues were like, we know her and she's yeah. sensible. She's not like some wacky doctor <laughs> telling people to eat coconut macaroons to cure Crohn's, right? She's legit. And so I think they were more accepting of it. And to this day, I will still say that my biggest referral source is actually other gastroenterologists who will scope somebody and then say, oh, you want to talk about that? Oh, well, go see my colleague, Chuck Kent. She'll talk to you about that. Like I've scoped you above <laughs> and from below and I've given you this pressure. This is not working. You want to discuss a diet and lifestyle? Yeah, go see her. So I, I, I appreciate that. And I feel really lucky to be able to have a foot in both worlds, to really accept and understand and embrace food as medicine and the importance of diet and lifestyle, stress, sleep, all these things, but to also have, um, you know, the whole toolbox of big gun medications for when we need them and to be able to judiciously apply them as people need them. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I do love that you have the both, both too. And I think that's why your work resonates because there is a trust in your knowledge and in your experience. And then you, like I said, break it down just so easily for the rest of us to just figure out, well, wait, what can we take on ourselves? Because I do believe that we have to be the master of our own health because, you know, all these doctors are really busy. And so they get their 15 minutes with you and, you know, you hope that you're, you know what I mean, getting what you need, but ultimately you need to be a little bit more curious, in my opinion, 
and and do what you can put it take control of what you can and I, actually i'm going to read from your your book the antiviral gut just this is a little bit of a paraphrase from some of the stuff that you wrote but um you said um and this was a question i was just asking a, you know a friend and i were just talking about but you start the book by asking why do some people get really ill or die from a virus like covid-19 or end up with long haul symptoms and others get a mild case or don't get sick at all then you write those outcomes might seem random but i assure you they rarely are being on the winning team when battling viruses isn't because of luck or coincidence or variations in viral virulence it's due to differences in us the hosts and our defense defenses put another way it's less about the potency of the pathogen and more about the health of the host is this why you wrote the book is this 100% your... that's yeah. it that is encapsulates yeah. the whole yeah. thing and so tell us yeah yeah, so I will tell you that in the early days, I mean, it seems like such a long time ago in some ways, right, to think about the early days of the pandemic. And I don't know about you, but the last two and a half years are a blur. Like, I Completely. cannot remember. I was trying to remember an event from the spring, and I was so <laughs> sure it was spring 2022. And I went back and looked at a photo. I was like, oh, no, it was 2021. So it's definitely a blur. Completely. And it feels great to be emerging into something more stable. But yes. In those early days, we, when we were all glued to the television, you know, I would look at the the reports and so much of news, whatever, whether you're watching Fox, MSNBC, CNN, whatever it is you're watching, let's be clear that a big goal is to get eyeballs and how yeah. do you get eyeballs with these sensational headlines and scare the heck we, out of everyone. We scare people. Exactly. <laughs> we scare people. It works every time. And I kept saying to my friends and family, this is scary, but you don't need to be scared. Here's why. You are healthy. We are healthy hosts. We are likely going to get COVID, as we all did. Yeah. And we're likely going to be just fine. Now, that being said, sometimes does, you know, some terrible thing fall out of the sky and flatness. It sometimes does. But not just for predicting viral outcomes in everything else. If you think about heart attacks, strokes, cancer, somebody who is healthier, somebody who is younger, stronger, fitter, on fewer medications, doesn't have any chronic medical problems, they're going to have a better outcome from cancer, from an infection, from stroke, from a heart attack, from whatever it is. So this idea that host health matters, and it matters greatly, isn't new. We see that in every aspect of life. And it's why we can be more aggressive when we have somebody coming into the emergency room. I had this debate over brunch yesterday with some friends, and my husband was saying, well, we treat heart attacks the same in a 40-year-old as in an 85-year-old. And I was like, no, we don't. No, we don't. We have a very different threshold for somebody who's younger, particularly if they're healthier, for what we can do because they can survive the intervention. Mm. We can give them more aggressive chemotherapy for their cancer because they're more likely to survive that. In an older, frailer person, we can't use the same drugs because we're likely to kill them. And so this side, and hope, but host health isn't just age. And what we found with this pandemic, one of the most profound medical revelations was a study from UMass, University of Massachusetts, that showed that the composition of the gut microbiome was the most important predictor wow. of viral outcome. More important than age, gender, comorbidities, even some of the laboratory markers like C-reactive protein or sedimentation rate, et cetera, that it predicted outcome and by outcome, I mean death, ventilation, respiratory mm -hmm. failure, 
with 92% accuracy wow, that's by looking at what's going on in the microbiome and specifically looking at levels of a bacteria called Fecalobacterium prosnitzii, F. Okay. prosnitzii for sure. I'm not writing that. I was going to write that and down. I'm like, no, yeah, I'm not writing it, it's, it, <laughs> Well, it's, a, it's, it's a in your book. It's in, the book. It in it's the a book. bacteria, yeah. that and others, that is strongly correlated with eating a lot of dietary fiber. Mm. And conversely, a bacteria called Enterococcus fecalis was associated with worse outcomes. And that's a more virulent bacteria that we know it's associated with post-op infections, et cetera. It can penetrate the gut lining, get into the bloodstream, cause problems. So, you know, immediately people think, oh, where can I get some F. prosnitzii? Let me go buy some. It doesn't work that way. You can't just go borrow some from your vegan friend. You have to, to cultivate a microbiome that's high in F. prosnitzii. You have to eat the kinds of foods on a regular basis that F. prosnitzii want to eat, which is foods that are high fiber foods. But the great news is you don't have to be fully vegan. You can still eat some animal protein. You can still occasionally eat a bag of Cheetos or something that's terrible for you. But you have to make sure you're getting in that plant fiber and so to me, it is such a message of optimism to, to be able to say to people that we can actually be healthier hosts. We can dramatically increase our susceptibility. It doesn't mean we're never going to get sick, but we can dramatically increase the likelihood that we are leaving the hospital vertical rather than horizontal mm -hmm. by uh, being healthier hosts, by paying attention to these things. Wow. And how did they test it? A fecal sample? Like Yeah, a fecal sample. Yeah. Okay. Sample. And, and it's not even something that you really need to test because here's the thing. When we look at the people with those comorbidities, so for example, if you look at that first, you know, tragic wave of COVID deaths in New York, that's been very well studied. We see that more than two thirds of those people had diabetes, hypertension, combination, had obesity, et cetera, had these comorbidities that we know make them sicker and yes. make them more likely to have a poor outcome. And all of those illnesses are also associated with disruption in the microbiome. Mm, They're okay. all associated with a disrupted gut microbiome. So if you are basically a healthy person and you don't have these chronic diseases, you don't have an autoimmune disease, you eat a reasonably healthy diet, you eat some vegetables every day, or, or more importantly, you eat a variety of different plants. We know from the American Gut Project study in 2018, that magic number of 30 or more yeah. different plant foods, fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, herbs, spices, whole grains. So if you're doing that and you're eating a nice diverse diet with a lot of plants, you're getting some exercise, you're managing your stress, you're spending time outdoors, those basic things, you're going to be fine. The overwhelming likelihood is you're going to be fine. Occasionally, do the odds just not make sense? Very occasionally. But poor outcomes, whether we're talking about COVID-19, stroke, cancer, heart attack, poor outcomes are almost always forecastable and they're reducible. They're not always preventable, right? but they are forecastable and they're reducible. And we know the same thing for heart disease. We know that you may not be able to do anything about a family history of heart disease, Yes, but you can decrease your cholesterol through diet. You can increase your exercise. You can stop smoking. You can get your blood pressure under control. You can... These are all modifiable risk factors. And it's so interesting. A lot of those same risk factors for so something like heart disease, they also apply for infectious diseases. Wow. So I wanted, to, yes. I wanted to, to write a book that people could read and first of all go, 
okay, this makes sense and it's accessible. This isn't, you know, all medical scientific speak. Right. And it's actionable. Here are, you know, 10 things that I can do really simple or two things that I can do that are really simple things that can help make me a healthier host. And so it it felt like an opportunity. And I'm so grateful to the folks at Penguin Random House and my imprint Avery and the wonderful team there for giving me the opportunity to sort of do my part in the whole public health rollout, right? Like what can we do for our community to help people be healthier and not like, it's not a supplement I'm trying to sell you. I'm trying to give you some really basic good advice that could potentially save your life. And that is such a privilege really and such an opportunity. And we're so, I'm so honored and so grateful that my audience, we all get to learn from you. And your book is laid out so well because beginning is how it works, what goes wrong, and then you get into that an actual plan. So it's like so easy to follow along. Um, and I think it's empowering to know that we have more control than we think. It's not, it's not random, right? Like, oh, I can't believe that happened to that person. You know, more often than not, it was probably based on dietary issues and the health of the microbiome, which is kind of where I want to start since, you know, let's start with, you know, how it works. Just can you explain for people what is our microbiome and what are some of the key functions it regulates? I know it's a lot. You don't have to list them all, but just so people have a foundational understanding of what we're actually talking about. The microbiome refers to all the organisms that live in and on our bodies. So when we think about the microbiome, we think about bacteria, but it actually refers to viruses, fungal organisms, protozoa, which are one cell organisms, parasites, all of them. And we're talking about a lot of organisms. Somewhere, I mean, the number varies, 100 trillion, 200 trillion, but more than a billion microbes in one drop of fluid in your colon alone. And of course, the gut is where the majority of these microbes live. We can't see them because they're microscopic, but if we scraped them up, they would weigh about three to four pounds. And it's taken us, you know, Antony von Leeuwenhoek in the 1600s first described the microbiome when he scraped some of his dental plaque. You can imagine in the 1600s, I don't think dental hygiene is what it is today. (laughs) Scraped some of his dental plaque, looked at it under a rudimentary microscope he had made and proclaimed, uh, they're the little animalcules, so prettily moving. And so that was the first, as far as we know, sort of modern, if you will, account in the 1600s of recognizing these microscopic organisms. And then Pasteur, a couple centuries later, talked about germ theory and how these microbes get into our body and they make us sick. And that is certainly correct in many ways. But it wasn't until Antoine Béchamp, who is another Frenchman, and really around the same time as Pasteur, he championed something called terrain theory, Mm -hmm. which says that if our terrain, our soil, and really what he was talking about was the microbiome and the gut, if the soil is healthy, the germ will pass harmlessly through without doing much damage. I mean, sure, you may be sick for, you know, have a flu for a week or two, but you're going to recover. And so both aspects, both germ theory and terrain theory are really important. So germ theory, we wash our hands, we wear masks, we socially distance to avoid germs when we can. But terrain theory is where the book comes in. This is like, yes, we do those things, but we also try to be the healthiest host that we can so that if and when we do encounter these germs and it's you know increasingly inevitable in the way we live we are able to um, have it pass through our body without doing lasting damage and so 
the role of the microbiome in protecting us is something that's really taken us a couple hundred years to figure out that these organisms are primarily friends rather than foes. So there's the obvious digestion of food. So you eat yes. the food, then it gets broken down into the micronutrient constituents, the fat, the protein, the carbohydrate, it passes through the gut lining. So those are active processes. Those involve microbes, the breaking down of the food, the absorption, all of that. Yes. So that's sort of obvious, like, okay, they live in the GI tract. So of course they're involved in digestion, but they're also involved in synthesizing vitamins that we can't synthesize on our own. So for example, a really important one, vitamin K, yeah. that is one of the fat soluble vitamins, A, D, E, and K that's involved in our blood clotting. And I'll give people a really cool example of how this works. If you go to the hospital for an infection, let's say you go to the hospital and you have pneumonia, they put yeah. you on an antibiotic. They would put you on a broad spectrum antibiotic that's designed to kill a wide range of bacteria because they're not sure exactly what bacteria it is. And after about four or five days in the hospital, the phlebotomist, the person who draws a blood, will typically tell the doctor or the nurse, um, this person needs some vitamin K because when I'm drawing their blood, it's not clotting. They're bleeding mm -hmm. and bleeding and bleeding. Why is that? It's because the antibiotic they've received in the hospital has killed off so much of the gut bacteria that now they can't make vitamin K because vitamin K requires bacteria. It's co-synthesized by your body and the bacteria in it. And so that's a classic example of what we see in the hospital as a result of antibiotics. So they're responsible for synthesizing and co-synthesizing a lot of these vitamins as well as hormones. If we think about something called the estrobilome, something I never heard of the estrobilome in medical school, but it's all the bacteria that are involved in estrogen production and in recycling estrogen through the gut. So their hormones, um, estrogen is one example, serotonin, the feel-good hormone yeah. that we know is involved in mood. 80% of the serotonin is synthesized in the gut. So if you're taking oh, wow. antibiotics every time you have a cold and you're taking acid blockers and all these drugs, and you're really disrupting what's going on in the gut, chances are you're disrupting serotonin production. That's affecting your mood. Additionally, serotonin wow. is a precursor hormone for melatonin, the sleep hormone. So now you're messing with your sleep. And we know if your sleep is disrupted, that's going to mess up your immune system. We know that vaccines, for example, can be as much as 50% less efficacious if you have disrupted sleep. And so it's, you know, it's like that hip bones connected to the thigh bone, thigh bones connected <laughs> to the ankle bone. It's like this stuff is all connected. And, and the gut, you know, again, I think of the central organ and then the ripples out to all the different organs, to the gut brain axis and the communication by the vagus nerve and via the production of serotonin and other neurotransmitters. And similarly, the brain controls gut function. It controls gut motility, secretion of enzymes, absorption right. of nutrients. So it's really, you know, it's really fascinating. And, you know, we have been definitely promoted from we're lowly poop doctors to, <laughs> to really realizing, you know, how much is going on. But the thing, the thing that I love about this work, Michelle, and you touched on it earlier, where you said, you know, we need to be more curious and so on, is the idea of empowering people out there because. One of the things I feel as a physician and being proud to be a physician, but one of the things I'm not so proud about is I feel that there have been a lot of scare tactics and people have been sort of disempowered as a community, right? It's like, we have the information and we're going to give you only what we think you need to know when you need to know it. And, you know, we sort of hold all the cards. 
Now, because people with the internet have access to all this information, it's leveled it, but it's also created a lot of confusion because now you have access to information, but you don't necessarily know how to interpret it. True. And that can make things even scarier, right? Oh my goodness, I have abdominal pain and I read this thing and now I think I have pancreatic cancer. That's right. Yeah. Never Google it. Dr. Google. It can be a double-edged sword. Yeah. So again, to be able to give people some tools and to say, I'm going to explain how this works. So it's less scary. And then I'm going to explain what you can do to make it work in your favor. Feels like it feels like this is medical care, right? I mean, I always want to say disclaimer, like the book is great, but I'm not your doctor. This is not a book designed to give medical advice specifically, but it does feel like we can put some really practical, actionable tools in people's hands so that they don't need me. That's my whole goal is you don't need to come see me because you're good, because you understand how your gut works and you've taken the steps. And again, I just want to say too, so grateful for the opportunity to be on your podcast, to have that sort of amplification, right? To for me to tell you, and then you to tell all the people who really rely on you for advice and, and, you know, and are tuning in. So thank you so much for that. Oh, thank you. And, and yes, I always do a disclaimer too, if it's a health related thing, and then it's like, go get the book and learn what you can, and then put it into effect, like what resonates or what you feel like you can manage. I had so many aha moments from the book, but also just what you were talking about, even when you're talking about serotonin being in the gut. And if you think about when you eat just junky, yucky food, it impacts your mood, right? And then you want more because you think you're going to get that hit of surge. I don't know, right? You th- It's like a bad cycle. And then like you said, you're not sleeping and that yeah. also impacts your mood. So you can see how what you're consuming impacts pretty much your whole quality of life, right? Absolutely. And it really is that fuel for the cells and we're generating more cells, you know, we're cells are dying and new ones are being born, et cetera. So, you know, do you want your new cells to grow up on Cheetos? I mean, not to pick on the Cheetos, but there's been, you've probably seen a lot of focus in the news cycle on these ultra processed foods. And, you know, people are sort of like, well, what's the big deal? They're just convenient. It's not a big deal. And it is a big deal because not only are they replacing the actual nutrients, but there are chemicals in these foods that are aggressively, actively harming our gut microbiome, harming our gut lining, making us really ill, and some clear associations between eating these foods, developing chronic conditions like Crohn's disease. And we know from a recent study, a 10.5% increased risk of premature death in people eating a high percentage of ultra-processed foods. And this is a study from Brazil where the percentage of their diet that consists of ultra-processed foods is less than the US. The US is now about 52%. Wow. Is ultra processed foods. And I shouldn't be surprised. Just go to the grocery store. It's yeah. Like 90% and what, is filled with that junk. Yeah. What's really scary to me is the marketing around things that are ultra processed, but are marketed as health foods. You know, so once you start reading that list of ingredients and you start to see something, some soy lecithin and guar gum and car- things like, like, okay, that doesn't sound like a food. Um, it it really completely changes the nature. And so many of these products, edible food-like products, as I like to call them, are made from bioengineered food ingredients. And I yeah. like to remind people, we can make car tires from corn. Car tires are not food, right? We can. Right. So these things that are made <laughs> from food-derived ingredients are really different from food in some really profound ways. And 
when I look at the rising rates of autoimmune diseases, of dementia, of all these chronic illnesses, yes. you can't help but think it's related. I mean, it's related to lots of things and climate change, et cetera, but a lot of it is related to the fact that what we're ingesting is not really food. Yes, which is a huge problem. And I, you know, I think like you said, okay, you have an occasional bag, like don't feel bad about it. But I got certified as a holistic health coach when my daughter was probably about four. Um, so back in 2014, and I started like, you know, as you become a mom, you start paying attention to more of like, should she be having that Starbucks scone? Like it's, that's a lot of sugar. And that's not how I was raised. My mom always had like, we always had a salad every day. And my parents still to this day, every day, they have a huge salad for lunch. I think that's actually why they did okay. They did well with the, with COVID and they just recently had it. And I think it's because they eat so many fruits and vegetables every day. I based on what you said, I like sort of had that aha moment, but when I'm reading in your book about dysbiosis, which I'd like you to explain what it is, I can't help but think we all have it. I mean, so, cause some of the, we do, right. Cause some of the root causes you said behind autoimmune bloating, celiac, chronic fatigue, depression, food allergies, and sensitivities, which I developed when my back brace came off. And I had another aha moment with that because I was like, oh, stress. That's like chronic stress to my body. I could literally not breathe because I, I was like, I know there's a correlation to the food sensitivities and the brace, but I don't know how. I do now from reading your book, the brace Absolutely. came off and the food. And uh, yeah, it was, it was, it is. I mean, for people to, when people think, well, they don't really understand, like stress is in my head. It's not in my body. I like to use this example. I'm very afraid of snakes. Okay. And a few things in the world, I, like even thinking about a snake now can give me a little, <laughs> and if a snake all of a sudden, you know, came through the door and was slithering around in front of me, a few things would happen really quickly. My blood pressure would go up. My heart rate would go up. I'd start breathing really fast. I'd start sweating. The hair on my body would stand on end. All of this because of the sight of a snake, which has caused a fight or flight reaction. Yes. Now that fight or flight reaction might be appropriate with a snake in front of me because I need to get out of dodge and avoid yes. the snake actually doing something to me. Yes. But the problem is we are experiencing that kind of fight or flight reaction all the time. Like, oh, I didn't get this paper done. Oh, my kids are going to college. I'm late to do this. I'm, you know, dealing with older parents and younger kids, like multiple moments throughout the day that are supposed to be reserved for, you know, escaping the saber-toothed tiger. Yes. I used to say running away from T-Rex and my 17-year-old is like, mommy, we weren't around when T-Rex was around. So I stand <laughs> corrected with my, with my evolutionary um, analogies there. So saber-toothed tiger, I think is fair to say. Um, so we're having those moments all the time. And some of them we're even creating in our mind with totally. the stress that we're putting on you know, our kids and ourselves about what we need to do and accomplish and how we need to be and how we look and all these things. We are literally making ourselves sick. And that stress actually can increase the permeability of your gut lining mm. and it can affect the gut microbes. So there's a very well-known experiment that was done in college students. And they found that stress, exam-related stress, they saw, Michelle, an increase in pathological, pathogenic, bad bacteria could increase a thousand fold oh in an hour, gosh. a thousand fold oh my when gosh. these kids were under stress. And so we think about, you know, our kids think about college kids during exam time, they all get mono, they get strep, they get COVID, they get sick. Why? They're not sleeping. They're eating, you know, crappy food around exam time and they're stressed. 
And so it's a perfect storm. We know that from this British Medical Journal article that sleep deprivation, six or few hours of sleep or interrupted sleep per night can lead to a whopping 88% increase in likelihood of coming down with COVID. So it's not just exposure. Exposure is somewhat inevitable, as we've seen. I mean, if the president and Dr. Fauci can get this stuff, you know, exposure is inevitable. But being really sick is not, and you can be exposed and not become infected. You can be exposed and become infected, but asymptomatic, infected, but mildly asymptomatic, mildly symptomatic, infected, sick, very sick all the way through. That's a continuum. And that continuum, again, is not random. Things that we can control, like sleep, like stress, like what we're eating, like whether we're moving, whether we're exposed to soil microbes, getting outside. And I think, you know, I've been accused by someone once of being unscientific. And I'm like, wait, in what regard? How is that unscientific? I'm like, this is what I'm not doing is I'm not giving you like fancy explanations that lead to a supplement or a drug, but there is a mountain of science behind all of this stuff, you know, not just for this viral epidemic uh, pandemic, but for others, but it doesn't, you know, maybe it seems basic is what they were trying to say. Right. And it is basic. I mean, it literally is like our grandparents advice. So much of this, right. Of get outside, get dirty, eat some vegetables. You know, these sorts of yes. things. Oh my God. I love this so much. Like I said, when I'm reading this list of dysbiosis, uh, you know, root causes behind it, I'm thinking, I don't know how we, you know, skin conditions, eczema, rosacea, post-viral systems, parasites, leaky gut, irritable bowel, um, vaginosis, yeast overgrowth. I mean, are we, do we all have dysbiosis and can we heal it? Can we heal it? Here's the thing. It is living in the modern world. Yes. We are going to have disruption of our microbiome, which is what dysbiosis is. It's an imbalance, right? It means that we have probably um, lower representation of some of the species we should have. We have less species diversity. We have more of the bad ones, fewer of the good ones. And the first thing I'll say is the solution to that is not to go on a scorched earth mission to kill off more microbes, as you (laughs) often hear people doing, or to say it's the yeast and we're going to kill every yeast in our body. It is really to create rebalance. So how do we rebalance? By repopulating and rewilding, as I like to call it. And we don't need to go all the way back to the cave. I mean, there's some things I do, like I'm not necessarily bathing all the time. I have been known to go a couple of days with just a little freshening up and, you know, not sort of super sanitizing myself. I find Let's the less Explain I why you hair. do that. Why are you doing that? Explain why. Because I've, well, you write about that in both of these books, I noticed. Yeah, because just like antibiotics can kill off a lot of the healthy bacteria in your gut, if you're using a lot of these personal care products, household products, a lot of them have ingredients in them, whether they're sulfate, sulfites, et cetera, that are very disruptive to the microbiome on our skin or on our scalp. Mm. So if you're washing your hair frequently, I mean, when, when we, when we sleep, our body is producing personalized hair oil that is designed for ideally our scalp pH, et cetera. It's producing that oil, that sebum to moisturize the hair. And then what do we do in the morning? We go and wash that all out. And then we put in a store-bought version, right? Which totally. is never going to be- I'm so guilty. I'm so guilty good. of this. Yes. So things like, I mean, you know, not to say that you never wash your hair, but like not washing our hair as much, not, you know, washing all that oil off our skin and then putting in a store-bought lotion and wondering why our skin is still dry. 
So the same sort of rewilding approach to our gut to I'm going to, you know, eat some more fiber, I'm going to be really judicious with the drugs, etc. Really important to apply that externally also. And remember that these things that we put on our skin get absorbed into our body. So less of the scrubbing, lathering, this sort of focus on being super clean. Um, you know, with kids, it can be tricky. Kids, especially during adolescence, they can get funky. They need need a little bit of washing. But again, <laughs> focusing on the groin area, the underarms, the feet, not necessarily the head to toe lathering. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's super helpful. And it's funny. Some people need their coffee every day. I need my shower, but I am aware. I have an actually curly hair, which I probably destroy with the hairdryer every day. Um, I just wake up and it always looks so wild that I, I end up oftentimes and I know it's not good. I know it's not good. Well, you see, I, mine is very different from the cover. It was funny with the second book, The Microbiome Solution. Yes. Right? And I remind people, I had Kimora Lee Simmons photographer for that photo shoot, for that cover. And um, I had a whole team that Penguin Random House arranged in New York. It was very exciting. They must have spent four hours trying to get my hair, which you see is very naturally curly. Beautiful. To look like that. Eyelashes, the whole, you know, glam. I remember during that photo shoot, like looking at the picture, <laughs> everybody had the little magnifying thing looking at the picture. And I thought, thank goodness this is not my actual job, right? Thank goodness I'm mostly in scrubs, like halfway up somebody's colon, because this is a lot of pressure. But people would come after that second book and then, you know, they get like the curly headed version who maybe showered that day, maybe didn't. And they're sort of like, well, where's, where's that doctor? (laughs) (laughs) All the glam, all the glam. Because she's rewilding. She's rewilding her microbiome. So again, like I'm not suggesting that people, you know, stop taking care of their personal hygiene, et cetera. But for example, Michelle, if we look at something like vaginal health and bacterial vaginosis, which is Unlike the gut where bacterial diversity is really good, we want all these multiple different species. In the vagina, we want to see a lot of lactobacillus. That's queen bee in the vagina. And so healthy vaginal flora is lactobacillus predominant. And there are some distinctions based on ethnic differences for how much lactobacillus, but we can all agree that lactobacillus predominant. And lactobacillus is an acid-producing bacteria. It produces lactic acid. Mm. And lactic acid repels invaders in the vagina, like herpes virus, like HIV, like human papillomavirus, et cetera. And so what we see is that women who have healthy vaginal flora, even when they're exposed to herpes and HIV and human papillomavirus, HPV, they're much less likely to become infected. Mm. Now, that's not a reliable form of avoiding STDs. I mean, you need to, you know, use condoms, et cetera. But we know even HIV, we've seen studies with sex workers who are exposed to HIV over and over again and don't get infected because the vaginal flora is different. And so, you know, understanding that, then we look at something like douching. Yeah. Douching is terrible. I mean, I think we're all aware now in 20, yeah. you know. In, I don't know. People want to but, smell good or whatever. Yes, I'm like, it's know. not supposed to smell like a summer's eve. Yeah. Right? It is the bacteria in there are there to protect you. And what you're doing with this douching is you're killing them off and you're mm. making yourself more susceptible to some serious things, to HIV, to HPV, to HSV, increase association with miscarriages, infertility, et cetera. Mm. So really the same thing with the gut. I'm like, it's a self-cleaning oven. You don't need to do colonics and wash all this stuff out. Like it took you years to accumulate all this important gut bacteria. So 
we still have some of these sort of almost Victorian ideals about cleanliness and so on. And while nobody wants to walk around with BO, um, understanding that the super sanitizing both inside and out can actually really disrupt these microbial communities. If we look at something like eczema, which is so common, we see that the majority of people with eczema in North America are colonized with more staph on their skin than than they should be. Mm. And we think part of that is that the healthier species have been killed off through, you know, whether it's these sort of sudsing cleansers or whatever it is, right? I mean, there's lots of different factors that can it be involved with eczema, including genetic predisposition, et cetera, dietary factors, antibiotics, antibiotics. We do see a link between the disruption of these communities. So we have to think, how can we live in the modern world and enjoy the modern conveniences, but still pay attention Mm. to nurturing these communities? And the, the things that are, I like to drill down to just three things, dirt, sweat, veg, yeah, dirt. We need exposure to soil microbes. So thinking about eating food that's grown in actual soil, not food coming in a package from the factory. So ideally, something from the farmers market. You can see some dirt on it, even if you're rinsing it before you eat it, which you should. So dirt. We know exposure to soil microbes is also really good for us, not just mentally but microbially. We see okay. that it's helpful for the microbiome. Beach too. Walking in the beach. Absolutely. We know there's something called the outdoor air factor. Mm -hmm. We saw that soldiers recuperating outside during the Spanish flu epidemic 100 years ago had much lower death rates than the ones who were recuperating inside the hospital. In one study, a difference of 40%, 40% for those inside and 13% for those outside. Amazing. In terms of risk of dying. And that has to do with something called the outdoor air factor, which is described as the germicidal constituent in open air that, you know, kills harmful bacteria and viruses. And we're not sure exactly what it is, but we know that being outside doesn't just reduce transmission. It also improves healing. Well, I got COVID in the middle of the winter, right? Right. Like a day before this huge snowstorm, but I was bundled up at night when everybody was in double mass, bundled up, bundled up, walking around because I was like, outside. I get fresh air outside, outside. Really important. In addition to, you know, expanding the lungs and everything, the fresh air is really important. So if you had the flu, you would do that too? Absolutely. The worst thing is to just lie in bed indoors because you're lying in bed on your back. You're not inflating your lungs. You're getting alveoli, the little lung sacs collapsing. You can't ventilate properly on your back and you're, you know, you're inside. So you have to, you have to base it also based on your level of physical activity. I'm a slow distance runner, but I'm used to doing a lot of exercise. You do but triathlons, sitting, right? Did I hear that in a podcast? So slow, slow triathlon and marathon. Or I am. I just posted something that this um, woman, uh, I'm sure I've said her last name right, wrong. Her debut marathon time is my half marathon time. And I was like, this is amazing. I'm like, she ran 26.2 miles in the time it takes me to run 13.1 miles. Like, but that's okay. We're both out there. But it was it's the fastest marathon debut time ever for mm. a woman. And um she's amazing for people who are interested in endurance athleticism or really just anybody, such an accomplishment. So you don't have to be out there running a 217 marathon, right? but just the fresh air. movement, the, the fresh air. And so that's sort of the dirt and the sweat together. And then veg, you don't have to be a vegan, but we know 
that plant fiber, we know from that American Gut Study project, project data, we talked about 30 or more different plant foods per week. We know you need to eat these fibrous plant foods that the microbes, like the f CI we talked about, they ferment those foods and create short-chain fatty acids. And the short-chain fatty acids help guide the immune system to the just right response. They help repair the gut lining. They feed the cells in the intestine. And, and you can't just take a supplement. I mean, you can take a supplement if you want, but you've got to eat the food also. Yeah. You've got to do these basic things. And so there's lots of things in the book. One of the, the plan, which as you know, is half the book. Yes. Um, is I'm really proud of, but I wrote a little short chapter, chapter 13, maybe yes. a little chapter, yes. the plan at a glance, which is my top 10 list, because, you know, the sleep section alone in the book, I think I give 23 or 24 different tips for how to get a good night's sleep. So I yes. wanted to say, okay, these are the top 10 things. And, you know, maybe in order, I would say, eat more vegetables, Pass on factory food, include some ferments, drink alcohol in moderation or not at all, hydrate half your body weight in ounces of plain old water, yes. avoid unnecessary medications, particularly the ones like the antibiotics, the acid blockers, et cetera, sleep, yes. regular routine of seven to nine hours, exercise at least half an hour, five to six days a week, moving your body, whatever it is you're doing, get outside a little time in nature every day, even if it's just walking around the block. And then getting quiet, finding a little time every day. I mean, I for me, it's often in the morning when I wake up, I try to do some deep breathing. My husband thinks I'm just delaying getting out of bed, but I remind him I'm doing my mindfulness, I'm getting myself ready, or when I go to bed at night, those basic things still make a tremendous amount of difference. That quiet breathing can trigger your parasympathetic nervous system and really bring down your stress levels, make a huge difference with what's going on in your microbiome, et cetera, susceptibility. So it seems basic and it is basic and it's really important. It is a foundation on which good health is built. Just like you described, your, my parents the same 87 and 82, and they still weigh what they weighed in high school. Wow. They eat salad every single day at lunch. They both, you know, I play tennis with my yeah. dad. Nice. I can now beat him. <laughs> beat me. But they do those, those basic things of, of maintaining health. And I, you know, I worried that about them a little bit because they were yes. older, but, yeah, but not same. a lot. Yeah. Not a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I love this. Um, I just need to ask you one question because I am just so curious. You talked about the antibiotics. Everyone's going to go read the books. You've covered so much. You've given us literally so many things we can do and they are basic, but they're literally the foundation. We're building our house of our body, right? And this is the foundation. So build it well and strong. And it's easy to implement all of the stuff that Dr. Shutken's talking about. But like your daughter, she had all those antibiotics as a baby. Once those microbiomes, all the good gut health micro, microbes are like blasted, right? Are they ever repopulated back to what they were? And if they're not, can you still create a strong foundation? That's what I'm, I'm just always curious yeah, about I, that. I'm so glad you came back to that, Michelle, because you asked me, and I think I went off on a tangent about dysbiosis. It is, it, it is really the whole reason that I got into, you know, I sort of shifted from what most gastroenterologists do, which is a lot of colonoscopy and a lot of prescribing and really... Yes moved into this idea of we can prevent and we can heal. And I saw it with my own daughter, who was such a sick child, how moving away from the unnecessary antibiotics and moving towards, you know, when they're little, it's really easy to give them lentil doll burgers and green smoothies. When they're teenagers, 
it's a little harder, right? And, you know, we have to reconcile ourselves to the fact that they're young, they're going to want to eat these other foods, but focus on what they're missing. Yeah. So don't focus on the fact that they're eating mac and cheese and maybe that's not the best. Focus on, can you get them to eat some broccoli with it mm-hmm. or grab a carrot as they're going out the door? And so really changing her diet quite profoundly when she was little made a huge difference. The further we got away from all this sort of antibiotics every month, the healthier she got. And um, she went through a long period of really not being sick at all. This fall, like a lot of people in her pair group, she's 17. She's had a prolonged, you know, flu type thing. And she'd been sick a while. I actually took her to the doctor or something. <laughs> Don't do very often um, to a good friend of mine who's an air, nose and throat doctor because she had a sore throat for so long. And I, he warned me, he said, you know, she might need antibiotics. And I said, listen, that's why I'm taking her to you because I'm very biased. So, yes. and I was so relieved when he said, no, it's chronic irritation from the post-nasal drip and that's yeah. why she's coughing and yeah. she didn't need anything. I, I was really relieved, but, um, you know, I've seen it firsthand with my own daughter and I've seen it in literally hundreds and hundreds of patients with complex autoimmune diseases seeing those diseases go into remission, um, you know, get to a very different state, get people get healthy by making these changes. And so again, not suggesting that you don't need medication or you should never take medication. Of course, For many right. of my patients, it's both, right? But then they can use less medication or they can use medications that are less toxic. And so I am a believer and a prescriber in a food as medicine approach and overall, what can you do? I love the way you described it, Michelle, of building, you're building your house. You want to build a sturdy foundation. Yeah. And whether you have a chronic disease or not, whether you're trying to prevent one, whether you're trying to get off medication or whether you're just trying to be more, more resilient and less susceptible to disease in general, these are things that really work and will make you healthier and I dare say happier. Oh my God. I have loved this conversation so much. Um, all of the show notes are going to be over at thegoodlifecoach.com um, where they can access your book, but tell us where they can find you directly. They can find me at robinchutkan.com. A little bit of a tricky first and last name, R-O-B-Y-N-N-E-C-H-U-T-K-A-N. They can find me on Instagram at gutbliss. And I do a free office hours every Tuesday at noon on Instagram live, which I love. We talk about different topics. I love love getting people's questions. So join me for that too. I love it. Um, You are phenomenal. And just once again, the book is The Antiviral Gut, Tackling Pathogens from the Inside and Out. You can buy it anywhere books are sold. And honestly, if you also want to dive into the microbiome solution, that one's also awesome. Um, But thank you so much for being here today. Such a pleasure. I've been following you so long. So this is really such an honor for me to be connecting with you and to have you with my audience today. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And I love all the incredible work that you're doing and all the, you know, the helpful advice that you're giving to people. It's, It's such a blessing for folks. Oh, you're so sweet. Thank you so much. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I hope you gained some new information or inspiration for your life. That is that the essence of this show is to really wake up to what's possible for you to reclaim your beautiful voice and to really learn to love and prioritize yourself. So if you gained any value from any of the conversations you've tuned into, 
make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast player. You can do that right now on your phone. And please do consider leaving a rating and review if you have yet to do so on Apple Podcasts. It's actually how more women can find the show. And I really want to grow a community of women who are loving themselves and living full on. So thank you as always for tuning in. And I look forward to reconnecting with you next Wednesday. Bye for now. Mm -hmm.